night. So, also, if you don't come to the church or weren't there on Sunday, I should probably explain to you why I have a black eye, because that's always a question people ask. So, one of my children, who is not here tonight, tossed my cell phone to me without me knowing it was coming, and that's the story. Simple as that. Caught me right in the corner here and thought I was okay. Woke up Sunday morning and realized, oh, nope, we got color. And so it's just getting more colorful as we go. So that's how it works until it gets better. But uh, So I'm privileged to be talking to you about a chapter in First Timothy, uh, a book that... Um, written to a guy named Timothy, who I'm actually named after. My parents chose to name all their kids after biblical characters, and this was the one I was named after. So it's kind of interesting to be sitting here uh, interacting about this book with you. And so, um, you know, I know Jack prayed. I'd just like to, to pause and, and do that as we get into our time together tonight and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, I do want to thank you for the gifts that you give to us. Uh, they are amazing. It's certainly the gift of your son. And what He did for us is, is primary. And then as He left, the gift of the Spirit, who You promised to guide us, and we ask for that tonight. We need You to teach us. We need You to guide us. And we need You to guide us in another gift that You've given to us, Your Word. And that You would reveal Your truth to us and allow it to uh, come to us in a way that we can understand. And certainly we have questions, and we'll have questions tonight. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, but Lord, I thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us and you have given us what we need to live the life you've called us to live. Not to answer every question, but to live the life you've called us to live. And then thank you also for the gift of each other. I thank you for this group, that we can do this in community. And what will happen uh, after this time is we break into smaller groups and have opportunity to discuss and, and wrestle with and, and uh, just sharpen each other in that conversation. So I pray, I pray your blessing upon all of it, Lord. And I thank you for each one who's here. I don't know what they're facing this week, but you do. Some joyous things, some probably some big challenges. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would meet them right where they're at and help them in their journey and just affirm your love to them, that they would understand in a deeper way uh, how much you love them and what you did for them and what that means in our lives, which is really everything. So we ask this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be talking about 1 Timothy chapter 2 tonight, so if you have a way to look at it, I would really encourage you to go ahead. There's Bibles, I think, in the chairs in front of you if you want to grab one of those. Um, I'll be reading out of the uh, New International Version, the 2011. Just if you don't have that one, that's fine. You'll be able to follow along, but just that's that's what I'll be I'll be doing. So as we get started tonight, first thing I want to talk about is just a maybe a reminder or not. I'm not sure, but just as we understand the New Testament in the Bible. So we're talking about time describing the church and what was happening in the early church. And a lot of these that we're looking at are letters. These are some of them written to either specific churches or individuals. And they're to address certain situations. And I think it's really important that we understand that when we come to these letters, we don't just think that it's just general, you know, for anything, anytime. There are our principles absolutely for that. But they are also situational, which means they had a specific situation in mind when they wrote these letters to address certain things that were happening. Sometimes we can think back perhaps to the church in the beginning and think, man, it would be great to be back there and to experience that. And it would. But sometimes we can actually almost make it like a romanticize it. Like it must have been great because there was no problems and everything was wonderful and Jesus had just been around and all that. And when we read the letters, we realize, hmm. They weren't so different than us. We have problems in our churches. We have difficulties in our churches. They did too. 
they struggled with things and they needed guidance and they needed to figure out how this all worked. And, and so that's why many of these letters were written. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and I know uh, Bill covered some of this with you in the first week that he was with you, he's addressing specific problems that are happening within the church. And we'll even talk about some of the background that I think will shed some light on where we're going to go tonight. So what's really happening, and I think you probably saw this a couple of weeks ago, is that Paul is telling Timothy, look, you need to address some problems specific to some false teaching that is going on in the church. There are some people who have come in that are sharing some things that aren't accurate, and you need to shut it down and you need to address that. Because if you're being taught things that are wrong, that will lead you to wrong thinking, which will lead you to wrong doing, and that's a problem. And so for any of us, we want to live according to truth, I would hope. We want to know what is the truth, and I need to order my life around that. And that's what Paul's encouraging Timothy to do to address this. So in chapter 1, these false teachers are causing all kinds of problems and division. So just let me give you a quick summary through the book so we can see this theme over and over again. In chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about false doctrines, and these people promote controversial speculations. So it's producing controversy in the church, not unity, but disunity. In chapter 1, verse 6, these people have departed from love that come from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere love. So there's a path they should be taking. They've gone away from that path and gone in a different direction. Verse 10, contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. So here's what the good news is about Jesus. They're teaching something that's actually contrary to that. So that's dangerous. It needs to be stopped. Verse 19, some have rejected faith and a good conscience. They've suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith and even names to individuals specifically in that passage. So think about that. Rejected faith. They've shipwrecked their faith. There's, there's big problems that are going on here. And then later on in the book, chapter 4, verse 1, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. So there's those who would seek to lead you astray and some have gone after that. Chapter 5, verse 15, some have already turned away to follow Satan. There's an enemy, and some have turned away from following God, and instead now are following the enemy. That's a big problem. And then in chapter 6, the last chapter, those who teach otherwise, in other words, otherwise from sound or good teaching, are conceited and understand nothing. They cause quarrels, strife, and constant friction. So again, this idea that these teachers were coming in and causing discord, they were making little things into big things and leading people astray. And in chapter 6, verse 10, he talks about people who actually have wandered from the faith. So look at it, departed, rejected, abandoned, turned away, wandered. You get this idea of what he's trying to address in this book, in this letter, and he wants to help bring them back and make sure that they're rightly uh, following the truth. And so that brings us to the chapter we're going to look at, which is 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so we're going to divide into two sections tonight. We're going to do the first seven verses, and then we're going to come back and do the, the last uh, seven or eight verses. Uh, 8 to 15. So let me read verses 1 to 7 and we'll kind of walk through it together. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. 
So we notice then the first verse when he says, I urge then, if the idea is in light of what I've already said in chapter 1, in light of all these, these problems and the false teachers, the controversy that they're bringing, here's what I, I want you to do. Here's what I want to focus on. Instead of participating or causing division and strife, here's what I want you to teach the people in Ephesus to do. And he starts with this. That petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. So he says, pray for a peaceful environment that's conducive to spreading the gospel. What he wants them to do is like stop being divisive, come together and actually pray and ask God to create an environment in which you can be sharing the good news of the gospel, especially those who are in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And I find this really interesting in light of our context. One of the reasons why we are to pray for those in authority is that they would make good decisions to help us live peaceable lives because in that environment we have more opportunity in a sense or greater opportunity to share the good news we're not worried about just surviving or all those things and when you live in a peaceful setting you do generally have more opportunity to be able to share with others that are around you and focus on those kinds of things and that's what he's saying he wants them to pray for and ask god for and this is pleasing to god because he wants all people to know him through jesus God's goal, his desire, is that people would know him and enter into a relationship with him. That was really important to Paul. And so he said, pray for this. Pray for this environment that's conducive to sharing the gospel because that's what God wants. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now we might ask, if God wants all people to be saved, God's not going to get what he wants? That's a question we might wrestle with, right? If God is God, couldn't he make that happen? And the answer is yes, if he's God, he can do that. But he's chosen to set up a system and giving us the freedom to respond to him in the sense of that he invites us into relationship. But his heart is that any can come into a relationship with him. If you're here tonight and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, no, that's what God wants first and foremost for, for you is to have that relationship. So then he goes on and talks about the fact that in this, in this relationship idea, Paul's appointed role is to share this truth, especially with the Gentiles. So he says in verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. You might say, why is he emphasizing Christ's humanity there? The man, Christ Jesus. Well, it's interesting. Christ is a word that describes. It's Jesus the Christ is actually what it is here. And so when he says Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So he says, here's Jesus. He's man and he's God. Right here in these three, four words. He's pointing to both of them saying that's what was required to build a bridge between God and us. That Jesus had to come and do what he did so that we who are separated from God can now be brought near and brought into relationship with God through what Jesus did for us. So what I want you to see here is that Paul is constantly emphasizing the good news of how to have a relationship with Jesus. It's like it's what he's all about. It's, it's what's most important to him. And that's why he's so grieved at what's happening at this church in Ephesus. And he goes on, verse 7, he says, that's, that was God's role for me. That's what he wants for me. For this purpose, to be a witness to what the gospel is, the good news about Jesus, I was appointed, so he didn't just choose it himself. God chose him. If you know Paul's story, God literally meets him on a road, blinds him, and then says, hey, you're going to be changed and you're going to now serve me. Uh, he had been opposed to what God was doing, to what Jesus was doing. Changes him. Chooses him to be a herald, someone who proclaims, and an apostle, one who goes or is sent, and that's both fits Paul. And he says, not unlike these false teachers, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and I'm going to teach faithfully and truly to those who are Gentiles, not 
Paul felt he was called more to the Gentile population than the Jewish population. He kind of felt like that Peter and some of the other apostles were handling going to the Jewish people. He felt like God was really moving to call him to speak to those who weren't Jewish. And so that was his calling. That's where he was going. So we see that's, that's you know, what he's about. And if you, if you do remember at all chapter 1, there's this contrast of Paul as a faithful and true teacher with those who are teaching false or things that aren't true. And it's already been highlighted in chapter 1. The first section of chapter 1, if you, if you look at it real quickly, he's talking about the false teachers. Second half of chapter 1, he talks about himself. He's like, they're, they're prideful. They're telling you they're right, but they're leading you astray. I'm letting you know I'm a nobody. I'm the worst of all. But God chose me and gave me this message, and I'm sharing it with you. It's the truth. So he kind of contrasts himself in that way with those who are, are leading people astray. So in this we see that this idea of, again, Paul's focusing in on the good news and wants to say, hey, listen, in an environment in this church that's become divisive and causing discord from false teaching, Timothy, what you need to do is encourage them to be praying for an environment that's conducive to sharing the gospel because that's what it's all about. It's not about all these other little things they're quarreling about, genealogies and calendars and all that stuff. It's really about Jesus and what he did and who he is. So then in the next section, he's going to go on and talk about to enhance the gospel, here's what you need to do. So if we want to create an environment or see an environment created where the gospel can be promoted to other people, here's what that needs to look like within this particular church in light of what they're, they're facing. So I'm going to read this section, and this, I would guess, is likely a section where some, if you've read the Bible very much, you probably have some questions about it. There's a lot of debate and controversy about what we're about to read. So we're going to walk our way through and, and uh, see, where, see where we end up here. So let me read it, then I want to make a few comments before we actually go back and, and talk through it uh, verse by verse. So verse 8, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. No questions there, right? Everything's really clear. Yeah, right? And, you know, I think we may read this and be like, man, you know, like there's some accusations of like the Bible is sexist or, you know, against women. Or, and you can read this passage and be like, man, I can kind of see that point of view or at least understand why some people might think that way. And again, when we come to Scripture, as we're going to see, it's really important for us to understand the context of what was going on, what was happening in that day, and compare it with other Scripture. When you see how Jesus continually elevated women in a society that often looked down on women, you can see that Jesus modeled lifting up women in his society, not putting them down. And if, if these apostles are teaching Jesus' teaching, it would make sense that they would be doing the same thing, not going against what Jesus had taught. So what's going on here? It's a great question to ask and one that we're going to wrestle with. So before we delve into the section, I want to take a little bit of time and look at the context. When we talk about reading the Bible, context is really important. In fact, I, I often use a phrase that's not unique to me, but I teach a class on studying the Bible. And we talk about context determines meaning. So when you're unsure what the meaning is, let the context inform you so that you can come to a more correct or accurate understanding of what the author was trying to say. 
So Paul's trying to communicate something to Timothy. The Holy Spirit's inspiring that, that those words. So we know this is, is from God through Paul to Timothy. So God is saying something to us. How do we understand what that is? One of the ways we need to look at is the context of what is going on. Now when we talk about context, the, one of the first parts of context we need to look at is ourselves. And this might sound a little strange to you, but we are part of the context when we come to Scripture. Because when we come to Scripture, none of us comes to it completely objectively. Right? We can't. Like, we may say, well, objectively, but honestly, when we come to Scripture, we can't be completely objective. It's actually impossible for us to do that. And it's not really the goal. We can't do it. So we need to understand that none of us are completely neutral or objective. We're all a collection of experiences and preconceived notions that we bring with us when we come to the Bible. Before we even start to read it, these are already thoughts and influences that we have in our minds from what's going on around us. And all of these contribute to a pre-understanding. Kind of we, we understand before we even get there idea. Before we even get to the text, we kind of have an understanding like this is what it's going to mean. And so that's often how we can a- approach things. So the goal is not to eliminate these influences that we have because we can't do that, but to be aware of the dangers of pre-understanding, of coming to a text kind of with your understanding already in place, right? So there's some dangers associated with that. One is what we often can call a theological agenda. In other words, I already believe that the Bible says this, so it must say this here. And we already have an idea in our minds that's set in stone. And so the Bible, we don't let the Bible actually speak for itself. We're trying to force the Bible to fit an agenda that we already have. And we have to be really careful when we come to the Bible about doing that. Danger familiarity. We think we already know. If you've been around the Bible a lot or heard the Bible taught, you're like, I already know what that means. I already know what that's saying. And we don't come to it with an open mind to say, well, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to adjust my way of viewing the scriptures and, and how I've looked at it in the past. And there's also a cultural influence, right? We are all influenced by the culture in which we live. And we often try to interpret scripture in a way that does not conflict with that culture. We kind of create this, uh, this boundary of, of possible meanings. And we say, well, it can't mean anything other than within this boundary. But often that boundary is set by the culture in which we live. So the culture says, this is true. So we, if we buy into the culture and just accept that, we say, well, this is true, so the Bible must support that. But the Bible might actually say, well, wait a minute, that's not actually true. It might go against culture. and We have to be at least aware that that could happen. Let me just give you one example just to kind of stir things up a little bit. If any of you are history buffs, right, think about the American Revolution and think about what happened, right? Anybody heard of the Boston Tea Party? Right? Yeah, so that's one of the most well-known events in the American Revolution. So in the city of Boston, some guys dressed up as Native Americans went on to the British ships and they threw a whole bunch of British tea into the harbor because of the tax that was being put on it and they, they disagreed with this. They were getting rid of British tea, right? So they went and dumped somebody else's tea into the harbor and tried to get somebody else to be blamed for it, right? But in American history, we read that and that's like, yeah, look what they did. They got the British and we ended up being independent of the British. But when you stop and actually say, did what they do fit what Scripture teaches us? We might come to a conclusion of, that was actually wrong. (laughs) What they did was not right. But we often celebrate it as Americans because it fits our culture. That, you know, we stood up to the people who were oppressing us and we, we stopped them. And I'm not trying to say the American Revolution was wrong. That's not where I'm going with this. 
But I think all I'm trying to say is sometimes we can allow our own culture. And, you know, if you're from another country or have other cultural experiences, you still have cultural influences. They might just be different than the ones that we experience here in the United States. But just to be aware of those things so that we can understand that, hey, let's let Scripture speak, not make sure, think that our culture is automatically correct. So all of these things can come into play as we look at these verses. So our goal here is to submit whatever pre-understanding we might have to what the Scripture says and be willing to change if needed. So we may come to this thinking, I already know what he's saying. Great, you may be right, you may not. But let's at least look and see what it says and see what's going on and then draw a conclusion. And here's the key. If the conclusion that I believe Scripture is teaching contradicts what I personally hold in this moment, am I going to try to change Scripture? Am I going to let Scripture change me? Do I come under the authority of what the Scripture is teaching? That's such an important part. All right, just before we get to the passage, one more thing I want to talk about, which is what we call often historical cultural context. What is going on in this time period that might help us understand the text? Many times there's understanding we can get from what was happening in Rome or what was happening in Ephesus, what's happening in this specific situation that might help us gain a better understanding. For example, if you're familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, any of you familiar with that story? John chapter 4, we just talked about this a couple of weeks ago at church. And we talked about how all this background information, that first of all, women didn't go to draw water by themselves. They would go early in the morning or they would go in the evening when it was cooler with the other women. That was their social thing. So here you have a woman coming to the well at noon by herself. So right there already in their culture, you know something's up. Something's going on. Why would she be doing this? Why is she alone? Why is she coming in the heat of the day when nobody comes to get water? Is she trying to be by herself? Is she ostracized? Then you learn more and more about her. You begin to understand there's a lot going on in this story that we might just say, she showed up at the well at noon. Who cares? You know, what does that matter to us? But culturally, we understand there's a lot wrapped up in that. So that's just kind of an example. So there's a lot of things going on in this in Ephesus, I think, that will help us to understand. There's an article that I, I came across that I had not read before in preparing for this that I found really helpful. Um, it's an article by Dr. Steve Robbins of the Vineyard Leadership Institute, and he talks about the context of this passage in a way that I thought was really, really helpful. So I'm going to share some of his, his conclusions. So get ready for a little bit of history here, but I think you'll see how this plays into what we're going to look at in the passage itself, right? So the Roman Republic, up until about the middle of the first century, women did not have many rights. That was just part of the society. Their property was signed over to their husband when they married. They generally could not cheat on or divorce their husbands. That was very much frowned upon. But husbands were expected to be unfaithful to their wives. They were expected to have a mistress. That was just part of the culture. That was part of what they did. And they had the freedom to divorce their wives pretty much for any reason at any time, right? Not fair, right? That's just how it was in that culture. So the Greek and Roman ideals for women could be summed up using the word modesty. In letters that were written in legal documents that we have from that time, this idea of a modest woman is what they, they idealized. A woman who would act in a certain way, dress in a certain way. This included how they dressed, not with elaborate clothes or jewelry or hairstyles. So modesty was kind of their, their key. Now, around 44 BC, changes in Roman law contributed to the rise of what has been called, not by them, we other scholars of today call it the new Roman woman. So things changed. Laws changed. The idea was to make elevate the role of women a little bit. They realized that this was a problem and they sought to address it. So now all of a sudden, 
the property of wives no longer was automatically transferred to their husbands upon marriage. They could retain their own property. They could terminate their marriage, even receiving back a portion or the whole amount of their dowry that was often given for them in marriage. They could get it back. So that was they, all of a sudden they had this financial independence that they didn't have before. They were completely dependent upon their husbands. Now they had financial independence. They had social freedoms. And some of these women used their freedoms in inappropriate ways. They sought the sexual freedoms usually reserved for men. In other words, men could have as many, you know, a woman or a mistress. Now women started to kind of do the same thing. The traits of the new Roman women were immodesty, including sexually provocative dress and sometimes a promiscuous lifestyle, not always. Many older women with substantial endowments or financial means sought sexual liaisons with younger men. That became a common thing in the Roman Empire during this time. They moved away from motherhood. Motherhood was kind of begun to look down on, using contraception to avoid pregnancy and abortion to end it if needed. Because the whole idea of being a mother and being home was beginning to be said, now I want to be free, I want to go do what I want to do, and kind of experience the freedoms that come with that. Now, of course, not all Roman women used their newfound freedoms in this way, but enough did that concern arose regarding the destabilization of the Roman household. So much so that Caesar Augustus, we may be familiar with that character, passed laws against the new Roman woman. So now they're trying to, make, they're trying to rein it back in because it's causing what they view as destabilization of the family. So he actually passed laws against um, men, I mean, sorry, women seeking younger sexual partners and, the, and the, uh, the emperor also actually provided financial incentives to young men who married and created stable families rather than hooking up with wealthy older women. So this is a problem now. Now we need to address it. So here's how we're going to do that. And those were some of the laws that were passed. So you can see this is all part of the context of what is being addressed by Paul in this letter. Now one more characteristic of the new Roman woman, so to speak, was that she was both bold and brash. With new opportunities in society, some women, again, not all, became outspoken and even aggressive in public settings, especially within the courts, within social settings. There's this, this idea of just be quiet and you know, don't be seen and not heard, which you often hear referred to children or try to be with your husband. Now it's like this freedom to just be expressive, and that was some, in some instances abused somewhat, and it became overly so. Now, one more thing about what was going on at this time, especially in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, where Timothy was at the time. Some of you may have heard of the cult of Artemis. Artemis was a Greek goddess that the people of Ephesus worshipped. And in fact, the Temple of Artemis, which was the largest building in ancient times, was one of the seven ancient wonders, was in Ephesus. And it was completely about women. Women were viewed as better than men in the cult of Artemis. Artemis was a female goddess that was worshipped. And all the priests were priestesses. They were women. And so this was part of the thinking in, in the city of Ephesus, this idea that women are actually better than men, and that that was part of the, the, uh, the idea of that cult, right? So if you read Acts chapter 19, where Paul is in Ephesus, he causes a riot because of his faith, and the, his faith is having a, a, a problem with the economics of the city. They're actually not selling as many idols as they used to, so they get mad. And they, what they do is they cause this riot, and they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, Acts 19 tells us. And they have to like rescue Paul out of the situation. 
So all that to say, this was a big deal in the city of Ephesus. This had a, a cultural influence on what was going on there. So that as background, I think, will help shed some light on what is going on here. So now we come back to verses 8 to 15, and let's walk through them and make some observations and uh, see, where, see where this can take us. So remember, the idea is to enhance the gospel in this environment. Here's what you need to do. So if Paul's focus is on what, as a church, you are an environment right now that is not conducive to sharing the gospel. There's fighting, quarreling, false teaching. So let's get back to an environment where sharing the good news is a positive thing and is happening. So to enhance the gospel in this particular environment, in Ephesus and what's going on there, here's what you need to do. First of all, he addresses the men. He's going to address men and women. If you notice, the sections on women are much bigger than the section on men. So that's one thing. Why is he saying so much to women but not as much to men? Might be a question that we would ask. Again, we might believe things because, you know, if you read this initially, well, he's, he's really dealing with women because he's putting them in their place. Is that really what he's doing? Or is there some more going on here that we need to see? So first he says, I want men everywhere to pray. He's already talked about prayer in the first part of the chapter. Now he addresses men specifically, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. We've already seen that some of these men and their false teaching has caused this kind of conflict that's going on. There's infighting amongst themselves, saying, stop the fighting. Guys, knock it off and knock off this arguing over things that don't really matter. Focus on prayer, which what is prayer? It's expressing dependence upon God. It's making Him the center, not yourself the center. And as you're doing that, in prayer, they would often raise their hands in prayer. That was just normal practice for them. Maybe you've seen this happen in churches or something that they raise their hands in prayer. And he's saying, when you raise your hands, make sure they're holy hands. So what he's saying is, what have you been doing with those hands? What have you been doing? Have you, are you clean in God's sight? When you come to pray to Him, are you putting aside all this stuff that's a problem and coming to Him in a way that's honoring to Him? Because the problem has been, you guys are, are fighting, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, so I want you to focus on praying, and praying in a way that's honoring to God with behavior that fits a life of worship to God. Then verse 9, he says, I also want, so he says, I want the men, now I also want the women, to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or very expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now again, in this culture where the new Roman woman is dressing differently than used to and really seeking to dress provocatively, right, to, because they're seeking to link up with younger men is common, some of this has likely crept into the church. And you may have, we don't know for sure, women who are kind of adopting this kind of lifestyle. And they're starting to dress in a way that would be seen in that culture as not fitting to people who followed Jesus. You might say, well, why does your dress matter? Well, think about our culture for a minute. Is there dress in our culture that you would say probably isn't really helping people to focus on the gospel of Jesus? And I'll use an example. You know, not long ago, you know, there's all these award shows that happen, and they you know, dress up for the red carpet and all that kind of thing, right? So on my news feed, one, the most recent one, I don't remember which one it was, but on my news feed, it popped up, you know, see, see what so the stars wore on the red carpet. And the picture that was there to get you to click into it was a picture, I don't remember what actress it was, it was a picture of an actress, and literally what she was wearing on the top was a feather across her chest. That's what she was wearing. And then what I, you know, I forget what was on the bottom because the attention was drawn to that, right? 
Yeah, and, that, and I thought to myself, hmm, you know, that's making a statement. And I would make the argument that probably that is not dressing in a way that adorns or helps draw attention to the gospel. It's probably drawing attention to you and, and having people focus on you. To me, it sent a message that I didn't think was necessarily the most wholesome message. I know I can be judgmental and I need to be careful of that. But as I just thought about it, I'm like, man, I, I, I struggle with that. So what is that dress in our culture that may be like, you know, this is just not appropriate. We might use that word. And we might have differing views on that, right? And our culture may impact that. But here's the question. What Paul wants to say is, ladies, you're starting to fit into a culture where your dress is sending a message that is contrary to what the message you are to be living in. So whatever that looked like, that's what they were doing. And Paul wants to bring them back through Timothy to say, no, come on, go back to a way of dressing that fits with the gospel that you're trying to, to share with everybody. So the key of modesty Go back to this idea of modesty, decency, propriety, appropriateness. All of these words you see in here are part of it. And we know from some of the documents that we have from this day that these actual things, elaborate hairstyles, gold or pearls, were often worn by high-class prostitutes, those specifically. So he's even naming some things that maybe they're starting to bring into their dress, things that normally would send a message that you don't really want to send is the idea. You know, again, I was trying to think in our day, what would it be? Maybe I'm off, but like I, I was reading a dress code for uh, my kids' school. It's funny, they just sent out this reminder because it's getting warm weather, you know, make sure your kids are dressed appropriately. And, what, and like this much is for the girls and like this much is for the guys, right? You know, and so in there, right, I know, I know, it's just the way it was. But in there, it was like no fishnet stockings. I was like, oh, well, that must be an example in our culture. That sends a message that they feel is not the message that wants to be sent. Now, we can argue whether or not it sends that message. That's not really what I'm here for. But I'm saying at least somewhere we often can identify certain things that might send a message that aren't really, isn't really fit with who we are as followers of Jesus. And whatever that is, then we should likely move away from that and move to something that doesn't go down that road. And this idea of very expensive clothes. Some of these wealthy, especially he's going to dress widows later on in the chapter. You're going to see that when some of the other guys come. He's basically saying here, look, don't dress in such a way that you wear these very expensive clothes to your church gatherings when you've got other people there who barely have anything to wear to these. And you're kind of sending a message like, you know, this is where you stand in the economic ladder, so to speak. Where church isn't meant to be about that. It's meant to be about people coming together on equal ground. And so he's warning against doing these kinds of things. So instead of that, making that your focus, but here's what you need to dress yourself with, with good deeds that are appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So the idea being like, you know what? Here's what I want you to focus on. Focus on your actions and do things that are leading people to a belief in the gospel. You who believe yourself and worship the true God Live and act in such a way. It's the same way as men lifting up holy hands. It's kind of saying the same thing to the women. Good deeds. Do those things that will be what God would want that would draw people in is what we're talking about. So here we can see how he seems to be addressing perhaps some things that are going on in the context of Ephesus at that time. So then he goes on. He says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, first of all, we'll just stop with that sentence and what is he... What is he getting at there? You know, should learn. First of all, that idea that women should learn was a fairly unusual concept in that day. Now, we think about like boys and girls learn together. They have equal access to learning. We think of it through our cultural eyes. But back then, for a woman to be taught 
was not as usual for men to be taught, especially within the Jewish realm of things where men would attend the synagogue, women usually didn't. So they would get the education, the teaching, women often wouldn't. I'm not trying to say this is right. I don't think it was right. I'm just saying that's what is. So the idea of Paul saying women should learn was actually somewhat anti-cultural right there. Because some would say, no, women aren't supposed to learn. Men are supposed to learn, and women are supposed to do other things. But he's saying, no, they should learn. They should learn. They should come to understand these truths as well. This is important for everybody to know that. But how they learn is important. And he uses the word quietness in quietness and full submission. So what is he getting at here? Well, again, what likely, and again, was going on, we're not told specifically, but if we try to fill in some of the gaps, reading a letter is like reading, you know, getting one half of a phone call. You can't hear what's going on the other side of the phone, right? So we're trying to fill in a little bit from a cultural background and what's happening. But it seems that it was pretty, I would say, I think fairly obvious that there's something going on where these women who are empowered are now coming into opportunities where they weren't in before, where they could have opportunity to learn, and they're becoming a distraction with how they're doing what they're doing. So he says you should learn, but how you're doing it is causing a disruption and a distraction to what's going on. So in other words, you're not being quiet, and you're not being submissive to whoever it is that's teaching in this. Sometimes we assume this in full submission to a man. He doesn't say that here. He says full submission. Likely what he's saying is in these teaching sessions or whatever's going on, you're causing a distraction. You're asking questions out loud. You're, you're maybe debating with the person because they're being often taught false teachings by these other people. So they're trying to you know, bring those up in these contexts. And it's becoming very disorderly in what's happening in the church. And he's saying that's not the way this is going to work well for there to be unity and for everybody to learn. Those women who are, are new to this uh, audience within the church, so to speak, who have this opportunity now to learn, do it in a way that enhances what's going on, not in a way that distracts from what's going on or take over of what's going on. He goes on in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, when we look at that, again, I do not permit. He's obviously forbidding something. So we have to be honest. Okay, Paul is saying this shouldn't happen. So what is he saying that shouldn't happen? And man, this this verse right here, there's just a lot of different ways uh, that those who study the Bible have, have seen this verse in particular, right? So let me just be clear. A lot of people who spend a lot of time studying Scripture have come to different conclusions regarding this. So it's not necessarily that some are, you know, don't care about the Bible and others do. Those who do care about the Bible can have come up to differing conclusions. And a lot of that has to do with how much they weigh on the, the background information. But when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, uh, your Bible or your translation may have a have authority over a man, which raises a bigger question. So in, in no context is a woman allowed to have authority over a man or assume authority over a man. It means the man has the authority in this situation and she shouldn't try to grab it away from him is the idea. That seems to be more about what this word is alluding to. The word that's used here has more to do with a forcible taking than just having in a natural sense. There are other words that Paul more likely would use in this context if he just wanted to say, in no way, no how should a woman ever have any kind of authority over a man. But here, the word that he uses has more of like the sense of a taking or a grasping of authority that is not theirs. It belongs to someone else, but they're trying to take it. And that, again, would fit with kind of this idea of this new Roman woman and the, and the freedom that, that they were expressing in a negative way if he was seeking to address some of those things. So when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to assume authority over a man. Here's a couple of ways you can look at this, and, and the construction of the sentence helps us a little bit. Is he saying, I do not permit a woman to teach a man or to assume authority over a man? Does a man go with both of them? Or is it to teach at all or to assume authority just particularly over a man? Or the construction actually could be as well, I do not permit a woman to teach in such a way that she takes authority from those the person who has that authority, which in this context would generally be a male teacher in that context, an elder within the church or somebody who's teaching. So all three of those are possibilities based on the construction of the sentence, but you could see which one you go with can have definitely an impact on how you're going to view this sentence, right? So I'm just trying to be open here that I'm, you know, I may share eventually my viewpoint on this, but you have every reason to say there could be other viewpoints that are valid, that are based on what this actually says. And I think that's important for us to recognize in this point in time. So the way I'm, I'm seeing this, the way it's worded, is the idea that he's saying in this context, the women who are not learning in quietness and full submission, instead they're seeking to usurp authority that's not theirs. They're just causing a disruption and in that, they are not to take a role of teaching because they're often teaching false things that they've been taught by other false teachers, and they're not to take over authority that's been given to someone else in this context. She must be quiet. She must, be, she must learn in a way that is not disruptive, coming back to that. Um, some of the translations you may have, she must be silent. Well, again, is that really silent, really what this means? If you look in other places in the, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11 and places like that, women are encouraged just like men who have gifts of prophecy or gifts, other gifts to, be, to speak out in the church. So he can't mean say nothing. That can't mean what he means because that would contradict other places in Scripture. So again, sometimes we read this and we're like, first blush, it seems to say this. Compare it with what other Scriptures say and it can help you to see, all right, well, it couldn't be that. So what is he trying to say? There's a different parameter that we can look at to what this actually might mean. Well, then he goes into an example from the book of Genesis. In verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Again, in a context where women are taking on roles or authority that is not theirs and becoming more brash and outspoken in ways that aren't helping in the church, where they're not taking a posture of learning and submission to whoever's teaching, but kind of taking over and even in some ways perhaps teaching some things that are false. And in a culture where women can often be viewed as better than men because of the whole Artemis cult thing, he reminds them, wait a minute, remember, Adam was formed first. So if you're falling into the false teaching of thinking that women are better than men, just know that's not true. But I don't think he's saying the reverse here either, that men are better than women. I don't think that's his point. His point is to offset this false teaching of the sense of that women are actually more important than men or better than men. He's saying, well, wait a minute. In other words, if that was true, why was Adam formed first and then Eve? What was, wouldn't it be the other way around if that was true? So I, my view here is not that Paul is trying to make a point that one is greater than another. I think there are different roles for men and women. But I think his point is to offset, again, one of these, this false teaching that's been going on. And then he goes on. And Adam was not the one deceived... It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women, and then we'll, we'll get to that last verse, and we'll, we'll wrap up with that. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So what is he talking about here? And again, remember, women are not better than men. Men were formed first, and there may be something about that. Well, that's a topic for another day, perhaps, because we're not going to have time to get into all the tangents of this. But then he says, remember, it was Eve who was deceived, just like some of you 
who are causing disruption and teaching false things that you've been taught by other people and Eve caused or contributed to the problem, what did she do? She sinned. That word for sinned means to overstep an established boundary. She went outside of what the boundary was, which raises the question to me, what was the boundary that was set? Well, the boundary was, you know, don't eat from this tree, and she definitely overstepped that. But she also, potentially, depending on what you believe about Genesis, and it's a whole other question, was there an authority structure set up for the husband and the wife that she overstepped that as well and went against her husband and did what he had told her not to do as well? So in whatever way you want to view that, she overstepped an established boundary. So the point is not that women in general are more easily deceived. Now, don't take that from this. It's the same example of Eve being deceived as you describe men and women in 2 Corinthians 11. So Paul uses the same argument to describe men and women. So don't think he's, again, putting women down or saying, well, you know, women are just more easily deceived than men. But some women in the Ephesian church were being deceived by false teachers, and these are described as teachings taught by demons. Again, remember the garden? Who is it that's tempting Eve? It's the enemy, right? In 1 Timothy 5, it says that some women have already turned away to follow Satan. It's exactly what happened in the garden. So he's using this as an illusion. Just like what happened in the garden, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening now. And you need to pay attention to that and not fall into that trap. And that's what he's telling these women uh, to be aware of, to be careful of. And that's part of why he's addressing them so much in this context, because of what's going on in the cultural context. All right, last verse. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This has been said by many scholars to be one of the most difficult verses to interpret in all of the New Testament. What is going on here? What is he talking about? Remember, this is in context, so we have to interpret it in context of what else he's been talking about. But one of the things that we might raise questions when it says women, actually the word there is she will be saved. So it's kind of going back to Eve and making the connection just like I connected Eve, I'm still talking about that scenario. Now I'm going to apply it to you, women in Ephesus. She will be saved. What does saved mean? From what? We usually think of saved, if you're familiar with the Bible, like saved from hell. But it doesn't always mean that in Scripture. You can be saved from a lot of things. And it could be here that what he's saying is women will be saved from false teaching, from lies, if they instead choose to follow the truth. She will be saved through childbearing. Why, why mention that? And are we talking about childbearing meaning Jesus? Are we talking, is this about a reference to Jesus? Because he's ultimately our Savior. Um, certainly could be. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. It doesn't seem to fit the context as well as just saying childbearing in general. That there's something that women are designed to do that men cannot do. We know that, right? And so there's a role that God has for them. And we'll get to, is that every woman? We'll get to that in a minute. So the idea here being, remember that God's plan for the woman includes bearing children and commitment to family. So follow that path in a modest, loving, and pure way. Don't go off path the way some women are, going down these other roads that are against what would fit the gospel, but instead go down a path that fits what the gospel teaches so that you can encourage others to believe that as well. Notice that Paul's instruction for younger widows, you'll get to this when somebody covers 1 Timothy 5. Just let me read it to you. He says, So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. He's addressing, again, a culture where widows would often go off and do some of the things we've already talked about. And he's saying, No, instead, I'm encouraging you to settle down, have kids, 
Raise them in a way that will come to know Jesus and follow Jesus themselves. Manage their homes. Give the enemy no opportunity to get in there with false teaching and going down a path that's not helpful. Remember, the goal of promoting the gospel. Give the enemy no opportunity for slander. That other people could look at your lifestyle and say, wait, you believe the gospel? You follow Jesus, but you live like that? That doesn't, that doesn't add up to me. And so live in a way that fits what you say you believe is really what Paul's encouraging here. Now, let me be quick to say this. Not This doesn't mean that he's saying every woman, if you, if you don't have children, you failed as a woman. That's not what Paul is saying. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he encourages some of the women there actually not to marry. He says being single is a good option. He says, I'm single. I think it's a good option. I think it's good for you. So in a different context, Paul actually gives a little bit different advice. And he sees singleness as a gift. So there are times where that is appropriate and certainly within God's plan. So I didn't want to leave the idea that you know, only through having children can you follow what God has for you. But that is one of the key ways that God uses women in this world. To have children, to bless those children, to help raise those children along with their husbands. That's part of how God has designed it to be. And then notice here the bookends of holiness. In verse 8, he tells them, lift up holy hands to the guys. In verse 15, continue in holiness to the women. This idea of holiness, following what fits with what you say you believe. That's what he's getting at here. So in all this culture that you're living in, that is shifted away from something that's consistent with the good news of the gospel, I'm telling you, get back to what is consistent with the good news. Live in such a way that when people watch your life, they say, ah, that fits with what they say they believe. That's consistency. And that's what Paul wants because he's so passionate about seeing the gospel go forth. And that will lead to chapter 3, which will be a natural question after talking about this relationship between men and women in the church and how this all works. What should leaders in the church look like? And that's going to be the next chapter that you're going to address. So, a couple final thoughts and then some questions and then you're going to get into groups. So let me just hit at these things. There is, as I said, valid evidence for varied interpretations of this passage. My own journey represents that. As I grew up, I favored more of a women should not teach men really in any context within the church. That was more of what I grew up understanding and what I was taught. As I've I've come to study more and, and come across some more resources, I feel like for me that position has shifted over time. So I'm more open now to women being involved in teaching ministry within the church For me, it's under the authority of the leaders of the church, but that should be for men and women. That's not unique just to women. That's true of what men and women should be. So that's where I am. But not everybody's there, obviously. There's different views on this. So you see that even mine has changed. This may frustrate us that there's these different uh, interpretations. We might say, why isn't this more clear to us? But it should not surprise us. Even Peter talks about Paul's writings and he says some things that are hard to understand. He actually says that in the Bible about Paul's writings. So this should not surprise us that there are harder things for us to kind of grasp and wrap our heads around. Um, And so the next thing I want to say is just be careful of judging someone who holds a position that's different from yours and automatically assume that that's unbiblical. It may be, but it may not be. And they may be as serious about studying the Bible as you are but they've come to a different conclusion. And that, in this passage, I think, is absolutely a possibility. And so what do we do in those situations? Well, I, I like really believe it says this, but I really believe it says this. You both should be able to go to Scripture to support your belief. 
And that's where I feel like I have to go back to myself and say, man, am I letting any kind of agenda creep in? Do I want the Bible to say something so I try to make it say what I want it to say? That's checking my own heart and saying, God, I've got to continually come back and submit to you. What is it? Help me see what it is you're saying and show charity and respect for others who may have come to a different conclusion in this particular area. You know, I've seen it go both ways. Um, you know, I've seen those who, who favor a, a male leadership uh, in the church and male teaching only as referred to as sexist. And I've seen it go the other way where, you know, women are open to any role or function within the church. You know, that's viewed as a feminist in a negative sense. So we can come up with titles to make the other view sound negative, right? We can all do that. And we see that in society all over the place. I actually feel like that's falling into exactly what Paul was telling them not to do. Don't argue about these kind of things in such a way that people look at you and be like, why would I want to be any part of that? <laughs> like, if this is what the church is about, if this is what following Jesus looks like, why would I really want to be a part of that? I think our most powerful moments as followers of Jesus is for me to look at another brother or sister and say, you know what, we've come to a different conclusion on this when, when I think there's room for it. I respect you. I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. Let's continue to focus on the gospel, right? I think that's a powerful witness to those who are around us. We need to be gracious and humble. Be aware of ourselves as part of the context and the influences that may nudge us in a direction or set up limiting parameters of what the passage could mean. Again, be aware of what I may want the Bible to say and just be aware to say, it may not say what I want it to say and am I willing to submit to that? And I think that's a really important part of this. And then does the position we hold end up lining up with Scripture? Lastly, here's some things I think we can affirm from Scripture very clearly that I would say there, there should be agreement on regarding men and women. That God created men and women in His image, equal in value. He doesn't value one any more than He values the other. We are both created in the image of God, fashioned in His image. God created men and women as similar but different. You know, when Adam sees Eve, what does he say? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but she's going to be called woman for she was, she's different but similar. And so there's a sense in which similarity, but there's also significant difference. And I, I ask the question, does that open it up that God created men and women for different roles in some respects? And I think the answer to that is there's at least that possibility. I would say there is. God has given men and women spiritual gifts to be used for the benefit of the church, and these gifts are not given based on gender. Nowhere are we told in the New Testament that men get these gifts and women get these gifts. Whenever the gifts are described, they're talked about openly as going to men and to women. Now, where those gifts can be used and what context might have some limitations, but the gifts themselves and the idea that we should express those gifts are very clear in the New Testament. Everyone should use his or her gifts in a way that builds up the church and promotes the gospel. And I think that's what Paul was getting at here. That however, whoever God made you to be in this setting, we all have responsibilities to conduct ourselves in such a way that it enhances and promotes the gospel. And so lastly, i just let you know, we do have a position paper for some of you who have questions about this that we as elders have written up about the role of men and women in the church. I'll have copies for you if you want to take them into your groups and use that as a form of discussion. I've certainly given you plenty of things that you can talk about and discuss in your groups. So, um, but before you do that, is there any like one or two questions that Rachel said maybe I could do this before you get in your groups about it you might have based on what we shared tonight before you head in there? All right, then get to your groups. <laughs>